Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with Glossy's editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How's it going, Jill? Hey, Danny. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm preparing to go to Shop Talk. Um, I'm leaving on Saturday in Vegas. Going to be talking to a lot of brands there. Not sure exactly how we're going to do the podcast next week, but um, I, whenever I'm back on, I will tell you all about it. Um, but until then, we've got a very fun episode today. We're going to be talking about AI, artificial intelligence, <laughs> which is seemingly everywhere at the moment. Um, a lot of people talking about it. Uh, I have strong feelings on it. There's not like a specific news story that we're going to be talking about. Just generally, um, it feels like there's so much conversation and speculation about what it's going to do to the industry. I felt like we got to dedicate a section of the podcast to it. Um, but then we're going to talk about Jeremy Scott leaving Moschino after 10 years. And then finally, we will talk about Telfar's new live pricing model, which I think is so interesting. And that brand is always doing cool experimental stuff. But let's start with AI. So, um, like I said, it's all over the place in the in the headlines recently, um, mainly pushed by uh, OpenAI's ChatGPT tool, um, which is, I think, also what's behind Microsoft's new Bing AI. I think that's ChatGPT, but behind the scenes. Um, but then there's basically every other tech company has some sort of AI thing um, in the background. There's also AI art through things like stable diffusion that have become extremely popular um, in the last maybe six months. I mean, I feel like it's been hovering there for maybe a year or two, but really exploded. Um, in our space, every fashion person that I know is talking about it and interested in it, but it's kind of like, I don't think there's a ton of uh, specific use cases in in place yet. It's kind of more where everyone's thinking about how they might use it. Um, Zofia, our, our international reporter in her London Fashion Week briefing, wrote a little bit about how some chat GPT stuff was showing up. There was a brand that used it to write lyrics for a song that played uh, over the runway. Um, there was another designer that used it to help design patterns, um, neither of which feel very game-changing to me, but I, I, there's just this sense around that everyone's like, oh, it's going to change the world. I'm a little skeptical of that personally, um, as I feel like I often am with this tech stuff. Um, but I will, I'll save my thoughts. Joe, what are your, what are you thinking and seeing about AI and ChatGPT? I think it's going to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> Not you too, Jill. No. I, I've gone to the dark side. And I mean, it could have to do with, I was just immersed in conversation recently at South by Southwest. It was the main, the main topic. If there was a drinking game, if there was a theme of the week, that was it. AI, not necessarily chat GBT, but I would, I was thinking about our conversation today. And I was just thinking about the conversations that I had this week alone. And I have three different people who mentioned three different use cases, either they're applying them now or they just see a lot of potential in AI in this way. And obviously, we've been talking about AI for use in um, product personalization, recommendation on sites for a very long time. So these are kind of newer um, ways brands are using them or maybe just now starting to talk about them with the chat GBT hoopla. But um, Matt Nastos, hopefully I'm saying your name correctly, Matt, but um, the best conversation, he um, founded a digital and performance marketing agency called Maison Market that works with a lot of fashion and luxury brands, Lacoste, Carolina Herrera. But just one use case he mentioned was um, 
using ChatGPT to make sense of a bunch of data. So a uh, brand dumping 500 product reviews into this machine or what have you to gauge, to gauge sentiment, common complaints, favorite features, things such as that. Caring Chief Sustainability Officer, I just wrote a story on my interview with her, Marie-Claire DeVoe, um, talking about using AI to avoid overproduction by informing um, like the product quantities based on prior sales, based on sales of like products in the past, and that it's playing into their sustainability play. They're not going to overproduce because here's what we know. And then last but not least, Dina Fierro, who I know listens to this podcast. Hey, Dina. <laughs> but um, she is the head of Web3 Metaverse at Shiseido. And she was telling me about again, agreed that AI was hot at South by Southwest. She was there. Um, but she pointed me to this digital creator, NFT artist on Instagram at this is Rio, R-E-O. I think it's, they just go by Rio. Um, and it was a fashion spread made entirely via AI. And you know, it looks legit um, as though it were from a print publication, maybe something edgy, sexy, not maybe a Vogue, but it had a little edge to it. Um, and the artist's comment underneath was, by the end of this year, you won't be able to tell the difference. I honestly, if you, you told me those were real people, I wouldn't have questioned it. He just said uh, what, I, what he's going to start doing, what he thinks we're going to start seeing is artists such as him adding more flaws to these uh, visuals, to these images, to make them even more realistic. So I think, yeah, uh, implications in terms of um, how, what, as brands are pinching pennies, maybe they don't want to hire a crew. Maybe this actually is more affordable um, as people are data scientists. If you can just dump things into a machine, we know ChatGBT as it stands, is not reliable. <laughs> we need to fact check yeah. anything that we're doing here as it stands. But, you know, I feel like it's early days. Go ahead. I'm yeah, talking so, a lot. No, that's okay. I was going to ask. So the, the use case of, of dumping a bunch of user reviews and asking the AI to figure out commonalities and common threads and stuff, is that would that be chat GPT or is that some other type of AI tool? He called it chat GPT. Yeah, I okay. haven't been in there enough to know capabilities yeah. full on. But I have been in there in terms of we're concepting a new event. Um, we threw a bunch of what ideas that we were thinking for the event, we weren't quite hitting it. And to be honest, spit out a lot of ideas that I'm like, pretty damn good. And I'm like you, like, I didn't want to admit it. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to use this. But it, I would say it's a thought starter um, for for certain things where it can kind of nudge you in the right direction or give you ideas you may not have had. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. I think there's two different things from my limited understanding of, of the technical side of this that are both kind of called AI because we've heard about machine learning stuff for a long time and using it to analyze data and things like that without necessarily human involvement, um, at least on the, the lower level, is definitely something that's been around for a while. I can totally see that. I think the content generation side of AI, like ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion that makes the art, is what I'm a little more skeptical of. And maybe it's because I'm a writer, but I-, I And an artist. I was, and an artist, a, a bad one, but I do, I, I like visual art. And I I'm, think for my job as a journalist, I, w I couldn't dream of using ChatGPT to write an article, uh, at least not in its current state, because my job, no, I'm not going to, <laughs> because my job requires precision. I And like, 
I talk to people, I interview them, I transcribe the quotes. I, I don't know if I could, how would I even begin to ask the AI to assemble all these data points and anecdotal, like not data, but just trends that things people have said to me and put it all together in a thoughtful, insightful way that's not just derivative of what else is out there. That to me, it feels like you should just have a human being do that because I don't know if the and and there have been publications who have published AI written articles and made a big deal out of it. Um, I think CNET was one of them, and then immediately had to correct a bunch of stuff because it was full of errors that sounded right and sounded very confident and authoritative. But when you look closer, it was like, you know, it was making stuff up basically. So I think because I'm a journalist and I'm coming at it from that direction of thinking about my job, I can't imagine an AI writing an article that's actually good. Um, but Digiday, our sister publication, wrote a really great article about um, how AI is making some publishers think differently about SEO kind of content. Um, they were talking about Bustle Digital specifically, which is a little bit in our world, wanting to potentially move away from these kind of clickbaity, SEO-driven filler articles that you know probably don't take that long to write and are just meant to game Google searches or whatever because they're thinking, well, AI is going to do that so much quicker so our writers can fo theoretically focus on more in-depth, like insightful, I think they use the term point of view content. And, and if someone's just like, when does this thing come out? We can let the AI handle writing an article about when does this come out. Um, and I can I think that's great, especially if that means frees up their writers to write stuff that's actually good instead of having to write SEO stuff all the time. I think that's amazing. My my other skepticism of AI is that there's so much there's the internet is already so full of vague filler content that's just meant to game the algorithm and is kind of low effort. And I feel like a and and it's limited in that we have to pay people usually not very much to to write all those things. Um, but with AI, where you can have it write a thousand, you know, you, have you ever gone to look something up and you find an article from some sketchy website and it's like six paragraphs of nonsense and then your actual answer's at the end? Like that's an SEO thing. They're just trying to game the algorithm. And now an AI can write that in five seconds. I'm like, I feel like the internet's going to become unusable because there's just going to be so much stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. That's just my yeah. worry. You know, there's so much filler already out there. And now we've just invented a way to make 10,000% more filler. Oh my gosh. Well, number one, a robot is no competition for Danny Parisi's journalism. <laughs> Let's Thank say you. that to start. <laughs> and second of all, I can name a job uh, that I've had in the past when I worked for a large mass retailer as a uh, in, the, in their marketing division as a copywriter, doing SEO, doing headlines, doing all the things where if, if that was today, I should be looking for maybe a new job. Like it, that would, I'd feel threatened um, because it was a lot of those things where a lot of corporate voices or um, leaders were weighing in on small bits of copy. And I honestly would rework it a bazillion ways and be like, pick one. <laughs> I was yeah. the Chad GBT of that office. But anyway, yeah, I think this will change uh, some jobs and the necessity of them for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's kind of the same, the same story with any sort of new automation tool. It's like the promise is, oh, it can automate all this busy work that's not engaging and free up people's time to do the more engaging stuff. And I'm like, that, if that's what happens, amazing. But yes. if what actually happens is we just fire all those people and they don't do it, then yes. that's not so good. And that's why the bustle thing, like I think is interesting. If they genuinely are, me meaning that all that SEO stuff that just takes 
work but is kind of brainless. Um, if that can be automated and actually those writers can all spend their time writing good articles and talking to people and, you know, writing fewer stories but better and deeper, that's amazing. But if the actuality is that they just fire a bunch of people, then that's not so good. Um, and, and anyway, bringing it back to fashion, I was talking about publishing and, and media a lot just because that's what we do. But in fashion, I wonder if there's a similar thing where, I mean, an AI can't cut garments or whatever, you know, can't cut fabric. Um, but with the design stuff, like you said, I could see, you know, give me 10 different variations on a tiger stripe like pattern or something. And then the actual designers go in with what the AI comes up with and then figure something out from there. I could see that working. I'm not totally against it. I, I think I was very skeptical of crypto NFT meta, metaverse stuff when that was happening. And I feel a little vindicated, I, but I don't feel quite so down on AI. Like I, I can see a use case Whereas with metaverse stuff, I never really saw any uh, a use case that I was convinced by. But AI stuff, like I, I do see how it can be helpful, and I'm hopeful that you know all the good things people are promising do come true. And I hope a lot of people don't get fired. Yes, change the world for the better. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Anything else you want to say about AI before we move on? I know I had a lot of opinionated thoughts there, but we've got other topics too. Yeah, all good stuff. And I honestly, just um, in terms of like uh, customization options and sizing fit, I think that a lot of the uh, suit retailers that do mm -hmm. customization are informed by, by AI and using it more. Anyway, a lot of implications, but yeah, we can yeah. move on. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about this more. Like I said, it's it's a big deal. And also, I do feel like there's already real use cases in a way that some other technology maybe didn't have. So I'm sure it's going to come up a lot more on this podcast and on Glossy uh, in general. Um, but let's talk about Jeremy Scott, who announced earlier this week that he is leaving Moschino after 10 years. I didn't realize this, but they've Moschino's been around like 40 years and have only had three designers, which is pretty cool. I think every one of their designers has been there more than 10 years, so or 10 or more years, I should say. Um, yeah, so he announced he's leaving this week. He was always known for these kind of humorous, ironic designs, very playful, lots of funny phrases. And there was that Miley Cyrus dress that said something like, I didn't know what to wear, so I put on this Moschino dress in big letters. Um, always kind of playful and cheeky, um, which I always found fun somehow and never became annoying to me, um, which I think if I didn't see the clothes and just heard about the concept, I would definitely think was annoying. But in practice, I don't think it ever was. It actually was, I think his designs were always very fun. I've got more thoughts, Jill. You you go. What do you, what do you think about him leaving? Yeah, it seemed out of left field. It seemed very, um, even though it happened back in November when Alessandro left um, Gucci, it just seems like what's the next shoe to drop? Is this just a large changing of the guard as all of these brands really hone in on how much um, these designers are driving sales now? Obviously, they've been successful in the past. What's happening this year? And what's happening as shoppers are pinching pennies? Are they go going elsewhere? Um, there was inkling mention of this with the group that owns Moschino, um, that they had seen great sales year after year, back after back. And then 2022, they lost, um, I think, 10 million year over year. Um, so not a huge, but big. Um, they blamed it on complications in China. So there's no um, report on why. Um, and he just said, um, I'll announce what I'm doing next at some point. There's question whether he will focus on his namesake brand that had kind of been on hold for a bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah. So you you mentioned what I was going to say. The the parent company, I think it's IFA. Um, lot they were doing really well the last couple of years, and then last year like had a big loss for the first time. Um, I, as far as I can tell, I don't think that has to do with Moschino. Like you said, they they blamed it on the lack of sales in China. Um, it seems like for the entire tenure that he was there, he was all you know Moschino was doing pretty well, and they were happy with it. Um, the, there's a New York Times article where they did mention, uh, maybe not as a reason for him leaving, but definitely plays into something that's going on, which is a move away from these kind of stunt fashion, you know, this like provocative headline grabbing kind of stuff and a move towards just a more subdued focus on like normal clothes kind of. Um, And and I can see that. Uh, I, I don't think Moschino was ever like hated for that or ever caused like a big deal because of like focusing too much on provocation like he, he did a didn't Moschino have that big collab with H&M years ago which I feel like was a huge deal and very you know very popular but it does it is interesting as we've been talking about that recently designers maybe wanting to do less provocation and more just you know standard designed it is interesting that he's leaving right in the middle of that it is interesting. But then again, I don't know if I, I do believe that Moschino had this vibe prior to Jeremy Scott. And I do we do away with the brand? Because who's going to come in and have that balance between perfectly playful but not too playful? Anyway, I feel like that's that's a challenge there if, if they're going in a different direction. Um, but I mean, personal opinions aside, I, I'm rooting for him. He's a Kansas City, Missouri boy. <laughs> and oh, yeah. really, yeah, he went away, um, maybe not the traditional fashion route, um, studied fashion design, did all of that in New York at Pratt, but then, you know, moved to Paris, tried to get a job and just launched his namesake brand. He didn't get, he didn't like go through, I lied. He did have an internship with this brand company group that just fired him (laughs) or or (laughs) said he left. I don't know that he was fired. Whatever happened, who's to say? Um, But yeah, not much experience prior to his line um, Mm -hmm. and does have a lot of memorable designs out there in the world. Um, Recently, last year, uh, styled Khloe Kardashian for the Met Gala. He had a little cameo on the Kardashians, um, but did these McDonald's um, M's for Moschino, did Budweiser, did Barbie, kind of poking fun at pop culture, um, had a, a presence at the 2019 Camp Met exhibit, um, and definitely plays into that vibe, which like you said, some people do it and it's like gross, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> they get, yeah. it, It's uh, Something about it was always fun in good fun and it gained respect from those um fashion authorities and a wintours of the world for whatever reason yeah well you're you're right that i mean that's definitely his style but also moschino did kind of have that reputation already before he started so so you're right i I don't know if they bring in somebody new i can't imagine them just going totally uh plain you know after this because that's that's not really their thing also, I was going to mention that there was a, a collection he did a couple, I don't know if it was a year or two years ago, that was right when there was all this talk about inflation happening, and it was all like inflatable stuff on the runway, like a big inflatable flamingo, which I remember thinking that that's fun, but right on the verge of like, oh yeah, haha, I like can't afford to live anymore. That's very funny, you know? <laughs> um but I don't think it. I don't think anybody was mad about it. But I remember thinking that that's a little bit playing with fire. Um, 
And then the other thing is you you mentioned Alessandro Michele leaving uh, Gucci and now Jeremy Scott leaving Moschino. Both had been there for a long time. And before that, uh, Daniel Lee left Bottega. Definitely a couple of big Italian brands um, lost their long-term designers um, kind of recently. So yeah, I wonder what else is going to happen there and where he's going to end up. Is if he, I wonder if he'll like you said, stick with his namesake brand, which has kind of been on the back burner while he's been working at Moschino, um, or if he'll get scooped up by some other Italian brand or maybe do something totally out of left field and do neither of those things. I don't know. Um, regardless, he's definitely a, a, a big name. I'm sure he's going to end up somewhere interesting. Cool. Let's talk about our final topic of today's episode, Telfar, who we have talked about many times, both on this podcast and also in stories on Glossy. Um, and for my money, one of the few brands to actually be innovative in the way people shop for stuff. There's a lot of talk about innovation constantly in this industry, but I really feel like Telfar um, does actually come up with really interesting new ways that people interact with those bags. He's obviously got that bag security program um, where you can pre-order a bag and you're guaranteed to get it. It just might take months because they make them to order, which is very cool. Anyway, the new thing that they've got uh, that they announced this week is the live pricing model, um, which I thought was so interesting. It's basically when they release a new collection, it's going to start at wholesale price and then slowly increase up to a retail price over time until it sells out. And whatever the price is when it sells out, that becomes the price that it sells out for future collections, for future drops. Um, and for me, I think this is really smart because it kind of removes some of the guesswork of pricing. Um, if something sells out ultra fast, uh, then yeah, it will be cheaper, but also it can be cheaper because that means there's more demand. You know, um, there's this is something that people will snap up that we can afford to sell for less um, because of economies of scale and stuff. You know, we can make more of it um, and sell it for cheaper. Um, and then if something doesn't sell out so fast, then you can sell it for more. Um, I don't know. I just think that's such a smart way to do it. And it kind of incentivizes people to get in there early. Um, you sort of get like a prisoner's dilemma thing where it's like, if we all uh, if we all buy it immediately, it'll be cheaper for everybody. So it gets into group psychology and stuff too. Um, I think it's a really cool idea. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I I think it's great. And I do think it goes against the grain because, you know, if Usually, a brand will jack up the prices if something's selling. It's, it's the opposite effect. Um, it reminds me of the backlash with concert tickets and Taylor Swift tickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dynamic pricing. You're, you're going to drive up the prices. Um, I have questions. I have a couple of questions about it because um, if the informing... Informing the price, it, it's supposed to be linked to the amount, the quantity of products that the brand is making, right? So it's like, if we can order a ton of them, then it makes sense for us to price this lower because the price, the cost is less for us. But if that's what is happening here, like what's selling out? Like how many, what's the quantity? How many? Right. I want to know these things. <laughs> Number two. Yeah drive hype fast. Like I'm a critical point of view, obviously like it's all good things here, but you're going to, this is like also a hype move. Like you want to get people in now. People have to shop now. What happens if something sells like crap and one person orders, <laughs> this is never going to happen for Telfar. Of course, um, yeah. One person orders one style in the first 10 minutes and nobody orders anything. They have to make that one style. And like, I mean, that that's not no. good. No, I think the I think the model definitely has like some 
some maybe weaknesses like that. But like you said, that would never happen for Telfar. And I'm sort of thinking that a lot of this stuff probably works in part because it's Telfar. Like people exactly. are going to buy it. Um, and maybe another brand uh, that doesn't have that same um, place in culture maybe wouldn't be able to get away with something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, the way I understood it was that they would make a set quantity first and then gauge how fast it sells out to set the price and then also maybe use that to gauge for future drops how many to make. Um, although, again, they also have this uh, bag security you know, program so where they, they find out how many people are going to order before they even make it and then make it to that. So I'm not sure how those two programs will interact, um, but... It, it is really interesting. I was talking to, uh, I went to an event with Mara Hoffman a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about resale. And one of the things she said that I thought was really interesting was like, you kind of have to be okay with just not making the maximum amount of money at all times, all the time. You know, especially if you want to experiment, you have to be willing to just, okay, maybe this is not the 100% maximized profit you know, way to do things, but that's how you land on interesting stuff is if you are okay with that. So I, I imagine, like you said, with the with with this live pricing thing, if there's more demand for something, it's selling out faster, you could sell it for more and you'd maybe make a little more money, but that might not achieve the same goals that they want to achieve, which is to understand demand, um, keep things accessible. Telfar has himself has always talked about wanting to be luxury through the the covetedness and not through the price, which I think they've absolutely achieved. I mean, their bags are, what, $200 or under $300? And yet they, I, I think, are just as in demand and and hyped and coveted as an, a Chanel bag that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. I love, I want this model to work. I think that if this really informs a new wave of the way that brands are selling clothes, it makes sense for the consumer, the shopper. It makes sense for the brand. They're able to just make something great sell it at a reasonable price that people can afford. They can place these large orders. It's good for the menu. It's good for all involved. Um, do you know of any other brands that do this dynamic pricing? The only thing that is even comparable, and it's not, um, I think just in the labeling, <laughs> was Everlane and Choose Your Own Price Sale. It's not the same thing mm -hmm. at all. Um, this was yeah. being positioned as, uh, I guess, in, in headlines and such as like, choose your price. Um, I guess that's true, Telfar's version based on when you get in, <laughs> when you can yeah. shop. Um, you choose your price like collectively, kind of. Yeah. It's like the, the entire audience collectively decides the price based on how much they, like how quickly they buy it. Yeah, I don't know if any brand that does something exactly like that. But one thing I was thinking of is I've been to a couple of bars before that have like a live stock market of the beers that they sell, where it's like if more people are buying one beer, the price of it goes up by like a quarter or something. It doesn't go up that much. And then if there's a beer that nobody is buying, it goes down a, like a dollar or something. And that's just a way to like encourage people to sample everything and, you know, make sure they're not selling out of one thing and have another thing sitting there. Um, I do wonder if a brand could ever, you know, do something like that. I don't know if they, I, I don't know if that would cause too much of a headache to change prices that quickly. Um, or if there's some other reason that that would be a terrible idea. If you're, if somebody's listening to this and wants to email me why or why not this could not work, I would love to hear it. Um, but that's a, a, a sort of similar idea that I've seen out there in the wild. And it's all like gaming. We're talking AI. We're talking gaming. <laughs> this is the future. I, I like it. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I think we'll see more of it. Um, just TBD on what that looks like. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and like I said, we will definitely talk more AI stuff in the future, but I think that's all the time we have for this episode. Um, Jill, it's always so great talking to you. Thank you for being here. Um, and for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Overcast, whatever other app you're listening to. I don't know. Can you do ratings and reviews on Overcast? But if you do, uh, if you can, please do that because it really does help us out a lot. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Wednesday, Jill or I will be interviewing some cool industry insider. And every Friday, Jill and I do the weekend review. Um, Jill, do we know who our next guest is for the Glossy Podcast? I do. It's Raisa Garona. She is a chief brand officer over at Revolve and really the pioneer in this whole mega concept of the influencer trip. Um, Revolve's changing their influencer strategy. They're changing a lot of things. So it was a good conversation. Good. Well, subscribe to the Glossy Podcast and you can hear that. Uh, and until then, thank you all for listening. <laughs>